Oh, Father in heaven, there are some things that we know how to pray and that we ought to pray and must pray. I pray for an anointing upon the ministry of the word. I pray for dead to be made alive. I pray for blind to see and deaf to hear and weak to be made strong and proud to be humbled and hateful to be made loving and hard to be made tender. I pray for the confused and perplexed to be given light and guidance. I pray for the alienated to be reconciled. And I pray for the lost to be found. I pray for Christ to be exalted and your name to be honored. I pray for humility in the ministry of the word and a deep reliance upon the Spirit's help. And I pray for docile, teachable minds. And now come, please. And in your great mercy towards me and us, be our teacher and help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Christianity is the only religion in the world and in history to affirm and embrace that there is only one true God and that in the one true God, there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. We call it the doctrine of the Trinity. The church does not and has not embraced the doctrine of the Trinity because there's a sentence in the Bible that says, there is one true God existing in three persons equal in essence and distinct in their personhood. You won't find a sentence like that in the Bible. The reason the church has affirmed and embraced the doctrine of the Trinity is not because there's a paragraph on the Trinity or a sentence that states the doctrinal precision of the Trinity. The reason the church has always embraced this doctrine and affirmed it and shed blood over it is because the Bible teaches unwaveringly that there is one and only one true and living God. And that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and they are distinct persons. That's what you find in the Bible. Over and over again, spread out over all the books and all the chapters is there's one God. There's a Father, and He is God. There's a Son, and He is God. There's a Spirit, and He is God. And they are not conflated into one person, but three distinct persons relating to each other as persons, and yet one God. That's just what you find in the Bible. The only reason we embrace the doctrine of the Trinity is because we're so bent, rightly so, on seeing the Bible whole. We want to get it all together. We want to affirm the totality of what the Bible says about God. And so we're driven by the sheer reality of what we see in the Bible to say 
There is one God and only one God. And the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God and they are not the same. They are persons in their own right, but one God. Now, if that perplexes you, as it perplexes many, keep this in your mind. You're not God. You are a creature of this God. And you are in no position to dictate to Him the way He ought to be. God is absolute reality. We are contingent and dependent. God absolutely is. He never came into being. He always was. He never became. Nobody ever made him the way he was. There is absolutely no reason that he is the way he is. There is no explanatory data or facts outside of him that caused him to be the way he is. He is what you've got to deal with in reality. And therefore, our role is not to tell him how it is, but to learn how it is. And then adapt our little finite minds and hearts to the way he is and the way he's made us so that we bring our minds and our lives into conformity to reality, namely God. The second person of the Trinity and the first and the third are all over Romans 8. The third person, the Holy Spirit, is perhaps more wonderfully dealt with as a person in this chapter than any other. And it might be good for us to step back before we dig into verses 26 and 27 and get an overview of the Holy Spirit's life and ministry just in this chapter. Let me tell you the reason why I feel constrained to do this. I could jump right into verses 26 and 27, which is where we are in our exposition. But I know there are a lot of visitors and I know there are a lot of us for whom the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not well known. One of my goals in just this little three or four minute overview that I'm going to give you is that God would beget in your heart now love for the Holy Spirit. And I would like in your heart by the time I'm done this morning for you to find yourself irresistibly saying, I love you, Holy Spirit. Jesus said the first and great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And at the end of that first hymn that we sang, To thee, great one in three, eternal praises be, hence evermore, the sovereign majesty may we in glory see, and to eternity love. So, many of you have said, Jesus, I love you. And many of you have said, Father, I love you. But I wonder how many have said, Holy Spirit, I love you. Let me just draw out of chapter 8 about six or eight reasons why you ought to love him. 
number one. I'll refer to the verses. They may be too fast for you to look at, but you can if you want. In verse two, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Holy Spirit has set you free from death and sin. He's working in you to free you. Love him for it. Verse four, the spirit helps us fulfill the just requirement of the law. Verse six, the spirit gives us life and peace. The mind of the spirit is life and peace. Verse 11, God is going to raise your mortal body from the dead by the spirit who dwells in you. If the spirit is in you now and you hope to be raised from the dead, thank him. He's the one who's going to do it. According to verse 11, you want to be raised from the dead? Love the spirit. He's going to do it. Verse 13, by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. Have you made any little micro advance in sanctification? Have you overcome some little bad habit? Have you become a little more loving? Thank Him, it's by Him that you did it. Love Him for it. Verse 14, all the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. Have you ever known or tasted the sweet leadings of the Holy Spirit into holiness and righteousness and love and wisdom. Verses 15 and 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you know yourself a child of God today? Do you find welling up from your heart, Abba, Father, an authentic cry to the Father? You know where that came from? It came from the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. If that is a valuable thing to you, that you know yourself a child of God, love the Holy Spirit. Thank the Holy Spirit. Rest in the Holy Spirit. He produced that cry within you and gave it authenticity by his witness. Verse 23. The spirit we have is a foretaste and a guarantee of our final redemption. Do you hope someday to be rid of this? Broken body, some of you young people, the last thing in the world you want is to be rid of your body right now because it gives you so much pleasure. But I promise you the day is coming when it will be broken. And it will be like Louise Nelson's body last Friday. Hanging on and on at age almost 90. Just those little short breaths as we waited, which will be the last one until it happened at 4.30 Friday morning. You're going to be there, kids, middle-aged people, 20-somethings. You're going to be there. You think you're in charge and not in charge, and some of you won't get there. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment and the first fruits that you're going to be redeemed with a new body someday. So you don't have to worry, kids. You don't have to worry. If your body is taken from you now, or if it's taken from you at 90, you're going to get a new one. And it's going to be better than this one. It will be capable of 10,000 times greater pleasures than the best sex you ever dreamed of. Now, here we are at verse 26. And he has another ministry to us. Let's read it. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts. Now, notice this. This is not my main point, but I can't help but draw it out. Who is this? He who searches the hearts. This is the father. He who searches the hearts knows the mind of the spirit Another mind. 
Because the Spirit of God with another mind is praying to the Father on our behalf according to the will of God. That is an awesome statement of the relationship between the Father and the Spirit as persons. It's these kinds of texts that have driven faithful Bible readers to the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are hundreds like this that say they don't teach the whole doctrine in and of themselves. They just say, huh, the Spirit of God prays to the Father. This must mean some kind of personhood. And so on it goes. Let's start with the word likewise. Likewise. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What does that mean? Likewise. I think it means something like this. Paul has been laboring, especially from verse 17 on, to help us endure the futility and groaning and pain and frustration and decay of this fallen age, which we talked about the last two weeks or the two weeks before last week. The whole creation is groaning together, waiting to obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God someday. It was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. And Paul's telling us these things that because of so that in all the futility and pain and frustration and sickness and danger that we are exposed to now, we won't give up hope. It's a very realistic passage. We're going to get sick. We're going to die. Things are going to break. Hardly anything's going to work. Kids will go haywire. Minds will go haywire. Stomachs, lungs, prostates, you name it. They all go haywire. And he says that's the way it's going to be. And he's helping us with that reality. He's helping us live in this real, fallen, painful, frustrating world by showing hope. Likewise, now... The Holy Spirit has some help to give in another way. That's the way I'm hearing the likewise. I've been giving you help with promises and hope to get you through this crummy world. And now the Holy Spirit's got some work to do. And I want to tell you about the Holy Spirit's work so you get help by it. You get encouragement from it. You can endure with it. That's the way I think it flows here. So I have three questions to ask of these two verses. Number one, what does the Holy Spirit pray for us? What's he say? What does he ask God for? Second question, how does he pray for us? Do we feel it? Is it an experience? What are these groanings? Third question, why does he pray for us? This is very strange. I mean, does it not strike you as very strange that the Father, omniscient, needs the Holy Spirit to tell him what to do according to his own will? This is very strange. God praying to God so that God would do God's will. This is strange, folks. If this doesn't boggle your mind, you're not boggleable. <laughs> and therefore, we need to ask, why'd you set it up this way? I mean... Just do what needs to be done, God. What's the point of these groanings and the Holy Spirit's telling you what you ought to do so that you would act according to your own will? This is strange. Now, 
I can only answer one of these questions this morning. So I have decided to spend two weeks on this text. So we will deal with question one this morning. And if you're all worked up to hear the answer to that third question, you got to come back next week. But as I was preparing, I had every intention of moving quickly through these two verses and moving on and getting through Romans 8. Um, I had to slow down because it's just too good. It's too good. And if if you don't share my taste buds for what is good, then sorry. (laughs) Uh, Skip next Sunday. (laughs) So here's question one, and it's the only one we'll deal with. What does the Holy Spirit pray for us? Now, before I try to answer it, just make sure that you see that he does. And this is good news. Verse 26. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself. And they use that big word intercedes just means praise. Ask God for things. He prays and intercedes for us with groanings. We'll talk about that next week as to the how of this with groanings too deep for words. So just know that the Holy Spirit is in the business of praying for you. As strange as it may sound, as perplexing and odd and maybe counterintuitive to your brain, that's what the Bible says. And who are we to say it can't be that way and shouldn't be that way? I say, let us revel in the fact that it is that way and try to figure out why it's such good news. Because Paul says it's a help. And I need all the help in this world I can get. So, What does the Spirit ask for? Now, I see three clues to answering this question in the text as to what he's asking for. And I'll point these clues out and then we'll ask what they imply. Number one, it says that the Spirit asks for things that we don't know how to ask for. We don't know how to pray as we ought. The Spirit is praying. So there's a clue as to what the Spirit's praying. He's praying things we don't know how to ask for. Second clue. It says that the Spirit is asking for things that we don't know how to ask for because of our weakness. Now, that word weakness is going to be a big clue because it's evidently the weakness that we have that is the reason why we're so unable to discern what to pray. That's the second clue. Here's the third one. At the end of verse 27, it says, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So there's the third clue as to what he prays for us. It accords with the will of God. Now, let's step back and take all those three clues and ask, what do they imply about what he prays for? Well, here's the first thing I see. When it says that the Spirit prays for me, when I don't know how to pray, that rules out a lot of things, it seems to me, that the Spirit prays. At least typically. Because, frankly, I know a lot of things I should pray for and just how to pray for them. I know to pray that I should be a loving person. I know to pray that I should be humble. I know to pray that I should have faith. I know to pray that I should have hope. I know to pray that I should have wisdom. I know I know a hundred things to pray for because it's very clear that every commandment of the Bible should be prayed into reality. If God tells you explicitly, clearly in the Bible what to do, you should pray that. If he says don't commit adultery, you should pray, oh God, help me not to commit adultery. Then get off your knees and don't commit adultery. If he says don't lie, pray, oh God, make me an honest person. If he says don't covet, you should pray, oh God, make me satisfied with the things that I have. 
and on and on and on. We know what to pray for. But this text says the Holy Spirit prays for things we don't know what to pray for. So what might that be? That's the way I'm getting at this answer. What does he pray for us? Let's take the word weakness and see if we can refine the pointer toward the answer. It says that that he's helping us in our weakness. Now, what is this weakness that is evidently creating the difficulty of us praying the way we should? What's the weakness? Well, the word weakness in the in the New Testament can be weakness owing to human nature. Paul used it that way back in chapter 6, verse 19. He says, I'm speaking to this because of your natural limitations. Word, asthenia, weakness. Or it could be weakness owing to sickness. That was the word used all over the Gospels for the things that Jesus healed. It says he healed many asthenias. This word weakness was leprosy. It was crippledness. It was blindness. It was deafness. Those are the weaknesses that might be in view here. Or it might be weakness owing to calamity or hardship. Paul uses it that way in 2 Corinthians 12. Which of those is it or is it all of them? Now, I think the clue is is verse 23 in the context of 18 to 25. Verse 23, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, namely the redemption of our bodies. So what's this groaning? This is the groaning of bodies that hurt. And the hurt, I argued in two weeks worth of messages on that text, of every kind, whether it's caused by persecution, accident, or disease. However your body hurts on the way to heaven, that's what you're called to endure. And you groan, it says you groan, oh God, how long, how long until my body is redeemed. And that's the resurrection. So the context of 18 to 25 is futility, groaning, suffering, decay. And he's helping us with that weakness by giving us promises. And likewise, verse 26, likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us with our same thing. Weakness. So I'm taking the word weakness here to mean the whole Painful suffering of our bodies, whether disease or persecution or calamity or accident, whatever is stripping you of your pleasures and making you ache and feel pain, that's your weakness. And so he says the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we are. Now, I think I've gotten close enough to venture an answer. We've seen that what he prays for us is things that we just don't know what to pray for. We're at a loss. And we've related it now to this weakness, which is the weakness of pain and futility and frustration and loss and danger. So here's my answer. The Holy Spirit prays. For us, that the will of God be done concerning whether we get well or not, or whether we escape hardship or not. 
Because what we don't know so often how to pray is, are we going to get well or aren't we? Am I going to get out of prison or aren't I? Will I be tortured or won't I? We don't know what to pray. The implication of this is huge for your life. It's really big. Before I unfold some of those implications, let me give you some examples from Paul's life to show you why I think I'm on the right track. So what I'm saying is this. There are experiences in life of weakness, pain, futility, groaning. It may be caused by sickness. It may be caused by persecution. It may be caused by accident. And in this situation, you don't know whether you're going to get out or not. You don't know whether God might ordain that you be in it and stay in it and die in it, or whether he might heal you or deliver you, and you you groan not knowing how to lay hold on God for the one or the other. Now, let me give you some examples from Paul. Do you remember his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12? We don't know what it was. It caused him pain and, and, and discomfort, to put it mildly, probably. And he calls out, oh, Christ... Have mercy and deliver me. Oh, God, deliver me. Oh, God, take it away. And three times he hears no, no, no. And on the third time, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Don't need to ask me anymore. You're going to suffer. Now, I put myself in Paul's shoes at that moment. And for the subsequent years of his life. If you had had that experience, wouldn't every time you got sick, every time you were beaten, every time you were whipped, every time you were shipwrecked at sea, every time some false brother lied about you, you wouldn't know whether God wanted you to escape and get well or not. Because he said no last time. I think Paul faced time after time after time in prison, in danger, and he didn't know what to ask for. Is he going to get out in Philippi or not? I mean, before the earthquake, did he know? Morning, they're chopping my head off. I don't know. Should I be praying for grace and strength to endure martyrdom, or should I ask for an earthquake? Here's another illustration. When Paul was in prison in Rome, he wrote Philippians. And the first chapter of Philippians is such a magnificent display of the heart of the apostle, both in its Christ-centeredness and its uncertainty of God's will. At least for a season, he wasn't sure what was going to happen. Let me read it to you. Philippians 1.22, if I am to live in the flesh, this will be faithful, fruitful labor for me. I do not know what to choose. There's that ignorance that we're talking about. I don't know what to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, because that would be very much better. And yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake so how did he pray 
He didn't know. At least for a season, he didn't know. My understanding, and I'll jump ahead to next week's sermon just a little bit here, is that what happens at those moments in the heart of the saint is groaning. And it is a holy groaning. And the essence of the groaning is the groaning of Philippians 1, where he longs for Christ to be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, and he doesn't know which it's going to be. And what the Holy Spirit discerns beneath words is, this groaning is for the exaltation of Jesus. And I will decide how it will happen. And then he goes to the Father and he says, Father, deliver Paul. Or, Father, give him strength to die. And it happens. And Christ is exalted in the way the Holy Spirit decides. And you may not know to the very end whether you're going to be delivered or healed. Now, I said this is relevant for you, and it is very relevant for you. It's not only relevant for those in this room because of how much suffering there is in this room and how much pain and how much cancer and other kinds of diseases, and you are wrestling, oh God, oh God, what's your will for me? What's going to happen to me? Will I live with this the rest of my life? Or will there be relief? Should I try this treatment or that treatment? Shall I just pray for healing? Shall I settle in and just take it like a thorn? Oh God, I don't know. There's a lot of that in this room. And not only that, it's going to get increasingly relevant because of the price to be a Christian Increasing. The price is going to go up, folks. You know, don't you, that America is abnormal. We've got about 300 years here of abnormality. Peace, security, freedom, incredible luxury. The poorest of the poor have luxury in America. This is abnormal. And it will not always be. The price of being a Christian in America is almost nothing. Depending on how hard you want to be holy and witness. But nobody's stalking you. Nobody's tracking you down. Nobody's putting little microphones in your room. Nobody's knocking down your door and taking you off to jail. It's a dream world. It's a Disneyland. And it will not always be. That means that increasingly you're going to have to take risks to be a Christian. And I ask you, which ones are you going to take? Everywhere I go, speaking around the country, like in Indianapolis on Monday and Tuesday, I try to weave into my talks the call to suffering, the call to risk, the call to martyrdom, the call to radical Christian discipleship, so that my theme for three messages in Indianapolis was risk and the cause of Christ. And my basic message was, take some! And everywhere I go, the questions start to emerge. With the children? Which countries? Can you wear gloves if you deal with the AIDS orphans? Can you take your kids there? What about diseases? Jesus didn't jump off the temple. Piper. 
And all the defenses go up. Increasingly, we will have to make choices. Do you come home when there's a coup or don't you come home? Is there a sentence in the Bible? Stay in Liberia three more months since the coup. Is there a sentence? Can anybody find a sentence in the Bible to settle that one so we know how we ought to pray with regard to escape or not? If you're put in prison, do you say, oh, God, get me out for my family? Or do you say, oh, God, give me endurance? Or do you say, oh, God, give me strength to die? I don't know of any sentences in the Bible that settles those things for you. But the Holy Spirit will. Oh, he will. And what he wants to hear is groanings that are Christ-exalting. Whether in cancer or in a prison or hovering on a decision to stay or to go. Like the email I got right after the Stains martyrdom in India. From a little group of YWAMers holed up in a building surrounded by a mob, emailing out, pray for us, should we call in the government to deliver us, to use force and sword, we've established a good name for Jesus here, we believe, and we're inclined to stay no matter what. What would you pray? Mobs are scary. Machetes are scary. Well, let me let John Bunyan bring balance to this because I'm not a very balanced person on this. I, I don't like prudence. And I know prudence is important. So I have to compensate for my excesses by bringing in balanced people like Bunyan. Now, you may not think Bunyan was balanced because he made a a decision many of you would regard as stupid and wicked. Bunyan stayed in jail for 12 years. He could have gotten out any time he wanted if he had signed the warrant, I will not preach. And he would not sign, and he stayed in jail. And he had four small children, one of them blind. Did he make the right decision. And I must watch myself here because I get chastised by David Michael when I say things about the family that I shouldn't say. Like, family is God to some of you. So I back off and I really didn't say that. (laughs) But as a pastor, you need to know that if you choose to go or stay, I love you and support you. Now let me read the balanced words. If the behavior of Bunyan didn't seem balanced to you, here's the word. This is balanced and this is biblical. And so hear this. He asked the, he wrote a book because he knew people were asking this question. His book was called Advice to Sufferers. He asked the question, may we try to escape? Is that legitimate? May Christians try to escape out of Damascus in a basket? Walk through a crowd? He said this, Thou mayest do this as it is in thy heart. If it is in thy heart to fly, fly. If it is in thy heart to stand, stand. Anything but denial of the truth. He that flies has warrant 
to fly. He that stands has warrant to do so. Yea, the same man may both fly and stand as the call and working of God within his heart may be. Moses fled, Exodus 2.15, and Moses stood, Hebrews 11.27. David fled, 1 Samuel 19.12. David stood, 1 Samuel 24.8. Jeremiah fled, Jeremiah 37.11. Jeremiah stood, 38.17. Christ withdrew himself, Luke 19.10. Christ stood, John 18.1. Paul fled, 2 Corinthians 11.33. Paul stood, Acts 20.22. And then he adds, there are few rules in this case. The man himself is best able to judge concerning his present strength and what weight this or that argument has upon his heart to stand or to fly. Do not fly out of slavish fear, he says, but rather because flying is an ordinance of God opening a door for escape for some. Which door is opened by God's providence and the escape countenanced by God's word? That's balance. So here we are. You got a sickness or you're facing a fork in the road and risk or just plain ambiguity. Or you're contemplating a ministry overseas. You're going to take your little one with you. Grandmama's not so excited. I love you for going. And I will love you if you stay. Let me close with five brief reasons why this should encourage you and strengthen you and help you. Number one. Be encouraged that you are not expected to know the will of God in every respect. I find that as a huge burden lifted from my heart. This text clearly implies you are not expected to know the will of God in every situation for what you should do next. Otherwise, the logic of the passage just falls to pieces. We don't know how to pray as we ought. The Holy Spirit knows what we don't know. He intercedes. He gets it done. Don't carry what you're not designed to carry. Don't wear the weight of of worry and anxiety about the uncertainty of what lies in front of you. There are points in your life. Of course, there are times when your ignorance may be owing to sin in your life. But that's not what he's talking about here. Here, there are times when we just don't know whether to do this or that, whether to stay or to go, whether to lay hold on God to get well or not to get well and ask that there be grace to endure. Don't carry a burden you don't have to carry. Be encouraged you don't have to know all the will of God. Number two, be encouraged that in your perplexity and groaning, you are not being watched, you are being understood. Do you have an image of God that when you're facing a decision of whether to do this or that, whether to pray this way or that way, he's got his arms folded in heaven watching? Come on. What's the matter with you, dummy? I gave you enough information to figure this out. Figure this out. 
I'll act when you ask me properly. Is that your picture of God watching you before a decision or prayer? That's not the picture in this text. The picture in this text is of you facing some kind of utter perplexity in life, very dangerous or life-threatening, or just huge for you, and you don't know what to do. But inside there's this groaning, and it's a Christ-exalting groaning. Oh, God, I don't know which way to go, but whichever way I go, may Christ be exalted. Now, the Holy Spirit tunes into groanings like that. In fact, they are his groanings. That's next week's sermon. They are his groanings, and he gets in there, and he says, Mmm, I like that. Christ-exalting groanings. And he goes to the Father, and he decides which way you will glorify the Son. Life or death. So, he's understanding you. He's not watching you. Number three, be encouraged that God's work for you is not limited to what you can understand or express with words. Mm. This is hel- this is helpful for me. Be encouraged that God's work on your behalf is not limited to or dependent upon what you can think in your brain and articulate with your mouth. We strive in prayer meetings to try to to think a, a God thought about what should happen in our church or what should happen in this life or what should happen in this vocation or what should happen for these missionaries. And we strive and we try to articulate it. And we feel so frustrated sometimes. I can't think it. I can't say it. But the Holy Spirit is not limited by that. He's not limited by that. What you can know and what you can express, He can interpret groans. And He interprets them graciously. He knows the saints. He knows the hearts of the saints. And He puts them into words for the Father to act. Number four. Be encouraged that in your weakness and sickness and loss and hardship and danger, the Spirit of God is praying for you and not against you. For you and not against you. It says that in verse 26. He intercedes for you. In verse 31, we're going to read, If God is for you, who can be against you? And we're already getting foretaste of that for you here. God is for you in this verse 26. Because the Holy Spirit is God. And so take heart that while he is understanding you in your frustration and limitation and your perplexity and your groaning, he's working for you and not against you. And now lastly, be encouraged that God the Father always hears the prayers of the Spirit And answers them, yes. And they are always prayers for you. And I'll give you a little tip off to maybe three weeks out from now. If you wonder why Romans 8.28 follows with a particular way of logic, which I won't bother with now, from these two verses, we're real close to the answer here. The Holy Spirit never gets a no from God the Father. He is always praying for you and not against you. Therefore, Romans 8.28. Or you can turn it the other way around. 
because of Romans 8.28. That's the way he prays. So I close with this ground assurance for you. Not only is the Holy Spirit in this room praying for the saints who are perplexed about what they should ask for in their crises, God always hears the prayers of God. God never says no to God. 